Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Madeline Murray O'Hare was America's best-known atheist, principally responsible for abolishing prayer in public schools. Madeline, you either liked her or you hate her. In 1995, Madeline Murray O'Hare mysteriously disappeared from her Texas home along with her son John Murray and granddaughter Robin. Over $600,000 of their organization's money disappeared along with them. What is it not to love about this story? It involves greed, it involves gold, it involves the most hated woman in America. This is a sexy story, and we should tell it. It was a local newspaper reporter playing forensic detective who helped solve the case. Madeline Murray O'Hare was often called the most hated woman in America. Mr. Withers, is this a form of harassment? No, because I will leave. I am creating the record. No, you're not creating the record. You are wasting my time. These are... When you're done reading that, call me. I'll be in the ladies' room. Is it your understanding then that you have brought call no documents today? Call me in the ladies' room when you are done. She was an avowed atheist who achieved fame in 1963 by opposing prayer in public schools. She took her case all the way to the United States Supreme Court and won. She founded the nonprofit group The American Atheists, as well as a magazine preaching the gospel of strict separation of church and state. She also wrote articles for Larry Flint's Hustler magazine and was the subject of a Playboy magazine interview. Madeleine O'Hare was a difficult woman to work with and was notorious for speaking her mind. I have never encountered a more bitter, more distasteful person than Madeleine Murray O'Hare. Don't touch me. She uh, was extremely foul-mouthed to the point that even though we were doing an interview about something that she wanted us to do a story on, um, we had to stop the interview in um, the middle because she was cursing so much. In August of 1995, 77-year-old Madeline, her 40-year-old son John, and 30-year-old granddaughter Robin left Austin, Texas without saying a word to anyone. The staff of the American Atheist Organization found a note on their office door saying the O'Hares had been called away for an emergency and didn't know when they would return. John's Mercedes-Benz and Robin's Porsche were gone, too. But they left their passports behind, as well as Madeline's diabetes medicine and her three dogs. Madeline may not have cared very much for people, but she sure loved those dogs, we were told. Couldn't get in touch with them, and I got concerned, so I started making phone calls. And then uh, I called John's cell phone, and that's when Madeline answered. But Madeline wouldn't tell board member Ellen Johnson where she was. 
Johnson said the calls were short and strained, and she worried that Madeline and her son were under some sort of duress. I questioned him about what was going on, and, and, you know, he tried to reassure me that everything was okay, and I believed it. Just one month later, Madeline and John stopped answering their cell phone calls. When Ellen Johnson took over the American atheist group in Madeline's absence, she discovered that since the O'Hares disappeared, more than $600,000 was missing from the organization's bank account. Suddenly, you have three people and a very large amount of money all disappearing at the same time, and this makes it far more interesting. No one associated with the American atheists reported the three missing, and it wasn't until a year later that Bill Murray, Madeline's estranged son, filed a missing persons report with Austin police. Madeline and Bill had a rocky relationship. In 1980, on Mother's Day, Bill told Madeline that he had embraced Christianity and was no longer an atheist. He then went public, writing a book and making a film attacking his mother's beliefs. My mother loved confrontations, and she never hesitated to use me as an accomplice in her schemes. She wanted to push the school prayer issue as far as she could, so she instructed me to keep a record of prayer and Bible reading at school. It was here in my home. My mother made me a spy for the cause of atheism. Madeline immediately disowned him and Bill never again spoke with his mother, his brother John, or his daughter Robin. Bill didn't know if his family's disappearance was foul play or if they had stolen the atheist's money and fled. A year after Madeline Murray O'Hare disappeared with her son John Murray and granddaughter Robin, journalist John McCormick learned what the American atheist group already knew, that John Murray had withdrawn over $600,000 from the atheist bank account just weeks after the three disappeared. McCormick also examined John's cell phone records, which indicated he had been living in San Antonio, Texas, after his disappearance. Many of the 200 calls were suspicious. They've been calling financial institutions. They've been calling airlines. They've been calling uh, drugstores to get Madeline's uh, prescriptions. Uh, There were more than 150 calls. They called jewelry stores. One of those jewelry stores was on Fredrickson Road in San Antonio. The owner said that John Murray purchased $600,000 worth of gold coins using cash. Even after Madeline's son, Bill Murray, reported the three missing, the Austin police showed little interest. There was no investigation by the Austin Police Department. It was a total joke. The police reaction may have been based on their belief that Madeline and her family absconded with the atheist money and that it was an internal matter. How can somebody that's that famous turn up missing with all that money and still no one wants to look for her? So I decided I'd be part of the team that went looking. Television news reporter Valerie Williams discovered that John Murray sold his Mercedes-Benz for $15,000, well below the car's value, to this man, Mark Sparrow. 
The seller identified himself as John Murray. But when shown a picture of John Murray, Sparrow said it wasn't the man who sold him the car. After reviewing mugshot pictures, Mr. Sparrow identified the impersonator as another missing person, an ex-convict named Danny Fry. This was an interesting coincidence. Danny Fry's family told police that Danny had been working with another ex-convict, David Waters, who had once worked for Madeleine O'Hare and had a falling out. In 1993, Madeline hired David Waters as her office manager. Within a few months, she fired him, maintaining he had stolen $50,000 from the atheist organization. Waters was charged with theft. He accepted a plea agreement and paid the money back. And in so doing, avoided jail time. But Madeline was furious that authorities allowed Waters to go free. Using the power of the pen, Madeline wrote an article in her magazine exposing Waters as a thief and implied Waters had homosexual relationships while serving an earlier prison sentence for assault. When Waters saw the article, friends say he vowed revenge. Journalist John McCormick called Waters and asked him if he had anything to do with Madeline's disappearance. I didn't believe a word he said, but uh, he spoke as though, uh, you know, it was the truth. McCormick discovered that David Waters, Danny Fry, and another ex-convict, Gary Carr, were all working together in Austin, Texas, around the time the O'Hares disappeared in August of 1995. And not long afterwards, a headless, handless male torso was discovered in a Dallas river. They'd spent three years trying to figure out who it was, but they had no fingerprints, no dental, and they had no missing persons records that matched this disappearance, so they were totally stumped. McCormick had a hunch that this body was somehow connected to the O'Hare's disappearance. Not long after the O'Hares disappeared, a male torso was found in a Dallas river. Without a head or hands, fingerprints and dental records couldn't be used for identification. Forensic anthropologists estimated the man to be between the ages of 35 and 45. He had a stocky build and a lot of chest hair. The description didn't fit Madeline's son, John. But journalist John McCormick had a hunch. He told police that it might be Danny Fry, the man who had impersonated John Murray when selling his car. Scientists took DNA from Danny Fry's brother and compared it to the blood DNA of the torso. It was a match. Just as McCormick suspected, the dead man in the river was Danny Fry. The blockbuster was when we could write a story that said that the headless corpse in Dallas was Danny Fry. And by the way, he was last seen with David Waters in Austin 
And by the way, he spent his last month in San Antonio at the same time the O'Hare's did. So that really kicked in the door. Suddenly, local, state, and federal law enforcement officials took notice and joined the investigation. When David Waters' ex-girlfriend, Patty Steffen, read about Danny Fry's murder in the newspaper, she immediately called the FBI. At first, she wanted to tell us small bits and pieces. Uh, you have to understand, this was a woman who was terrified. She gave investigators an important lead. Three years earlier, she said that David Waters had rented a storage unit around the time the O'Hares disappeared, and that Waters had once gone there with this spray canister. Laboratory tests on the canister revealed it had once contained bleach, which is sometimes used to remove blood evidence. Armed with a search warrant, police found a tiny red stain beneath a piece of aluminum under the wall. It was so small, it was almost invisible. With blood from Madeline's son, Bill, for comparison, a mitochondrial DNA test revealed the stain was a mixture of two people. Madeline Murray O'Hare and her son, John Murray. Next, the FBI searched Waters' apartment. We found documents that belonged to the O'Hares that were dated after David Waters had been fired from their organization. Mr. Waters, himself a prior convicted felon who was not allowed to have guns or ammunition, was found to be an illegal possession of about 118 rounds of handgun ammunition of three different calibers. They even found books from the O'Hare Library and a bow saw. The FBI confronted David Waters with the forensic and physical evidence against him. It took quite a while, but eventually, five and a half years after the O'Hares disappeared, Waters led investigators to a remote burial site at Camp Wood, Texas. Forensic anthropologist Dr. David Glassman was there. When we hit the first bone, it was kind of interesting in this case because the bone was very large. After 21 hours of excavation, three adult bodies were uncovered. In each case, the legs had been cut off, possibly to make it easier to transport the bodies. There had been some effort to burn the remains, uh, not to the point of cremation, but in order to destroy maybe the clothing or any other, uh, you know, DNA evidence that might be there. As the remains were unearthed, shining in the afternoon sun was the metal plate of an artificial hip. Medical records revealed that Madeline O'Hare had undergone hip replacement surgery several years before her disappearance. The serial number of the hip in Madeline's medical file matched the number on the hip in the grave. Forensic odontologists compared the O'Hare's dental records to the skulls in the grave and confirmed that these were the remains of Madeline, her son John, and granddaughter Robin. For John Murray, there were small fractures that occurred to the skull itself, indicating some blunt trauma uh, had been done uh, to him during the time of his death. 
The cause of death for Madeline and Robin couldn't be determined by looking at the bones. But since their heads were covered in plastic, it was assumed they were asphyxiated. But investigators found something else. An extra head and two extra hands. The head showed a single gunshot wound at the base of the skull. Forensic scientists used a photo superimposition technique for identification. They suspected the skull was that of Danny Fry, the man whose torso was found in the Dallas River. Scientists took a photograph of Danny Fry, then photographed the skull at the same angle and size. The two photographs were superimposed to see if the facial features matched the skull. Every area that I examined in the video superimposition matched up. The motive for the O'Hare's murder had been revenge. But why had Danny Fry been murdered? Forensic evidence found years after the O'Hare's disappearance tied David Waters and his two associates, Danny Fry and Gary Carr, to their murders. David Waters' girlfriend, Patty Steffens, told police that Waters kidnapped the O'Hare's because of the unflattering and inflammatory article Madeline had written about him. His girlfriend said he fantasized about torturing her, cutting off her toes, and so basically, I think this whole thing came down to not just money, but really uh, ugly uh, personal chemistry between two uh, dysfunctional personalities. For David Waters, it was about revenge. He wanted the ultimate revenge on Madeleine O'Hare, and the money was just a byproduct. After kidnapping the O'Hares, Waters forced John Murray to withdraw $600,000 from the atheist bank account and then took him to the jewelry store to exchange the $600,000 for gold coins. The O'Hares were most likely dead by the time Danny Fry impersonated John Murray to sell his car. But why was Danny Fry killed too? The answer was his drinking. We knew that Danny Fry drank and uh, loose lips sink ships. And by what David had told Bob Fry about his brother, and that was, you know, your brother has a big mouth, could be the thing that caused his death. But removing Danny Fry's head and hands still didn't prevent identification. DNA and skull photo superimposition were all scientists needed. Ironically... After stealing the $600,000 from the O'Hares, Waters never got the opportunity to enjoy the money. It was stolen from him. Well, his first mistake was putting his money in a, in a storage locker up in Austin and having three bozos from San Antonio who were looking for used TVs uh, open up the locker with a master key and find a suitcase with a half million in gold. Stand back. For his role in this case... David Waters was sentenced to 80 years in prison. His accomplice, Gary Carr, was sentenced to life in prison. Mr. Carr fully admitted his role in involvement uh, with David Waters in the abduction, uh, robbery, and murder of the O'Hares. 
and uh, he indicated that he had assisted in dismembering the bodies and putting the body parts in 55-gallon drums in a storage unit here in, in Austin. For his persistence, John McCormick is one of the heroes of this case. And forensic science played an important role, too. Well, I mean, this is definitely one that, uh, if it wasn't for DNA, we'd probably still be scratching our heads as to who this person was. A lot of times I, I kind of forget about the case when the next case comes in. And uh, so I really don't have one that always jumps to mind. But I'll remember this one for a long time. <laughs> 